Welcome to the new healthcare economy where everyone wins for a change. Employers, consumers, primary care physicians, outcomes, shareholders, even our communities all win with costs dropping 20 to 60%. This unstoppable direct contracting movement bypasses the big middles with their crooked game boards, devious rule book, rigged dice, and purchased referees. I'm Rob Barshop, and I'm glad you're here. years ago, the triple aim came out of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement as a brainchild of John Whittington and Tom Nolan, and eight years later became the quadruple aim, which says you can have a happy patient, a happy clinician and caregiver, a lower costs, better population health and outcomes, but just not all four. Got to give something up. One's got to give, except the creators of this quadruple aim never met direct contracting where 20 million members, through employers mostly, will directly hire primary care doctors and specialists that buy imaging labs and meds. Often, no big insurer is required, no PBM is required, no expensive extractive bloated middles gumming up the consumer experience is required. Gumming up the payment, now streamlined like a rocket ship or a submarine, because all three of those, including direct contracting, have to be streamlined, just the very nature of the beast. Direct primary care with 20 million members is a subset of direct contracting that we'll be talking about today that we talk about pretty much every week. So there are 60 free market surgery centers. If you listen to the show, you know that already. There's 640 independent ambulatory surgery centers. You know that too, where the surgeons of every stripe are paid double or more their hospital paid fees, but at 40 to 80% lower cost to employers, then the big hospital systems will charge. And routinely with lower complication and infection rates. We featured several on this show. And all labs happily take cash over insurance, why wouldn't they? And 1,700 independent imaging centers accept cash as well, versus the 8,400 that are owned by the bigs. Independents offer 40 to 60% lower costs in their imaging centers versus the hospital-owned diagnostic center cousins. The place of service really matters, and the quality is unaffected we've learned from guests here. And independent wholesale pharmacies offer generics at one to four pennies a pill for 85% of the generics. We've had that guest too, making me question, who needs a PBM when prices of meds are literally rock bottom already in the market at a wholesale rate? What benefit precisely needs managing at four pennies a pill? Either I'm smoking dope or PBMs are dinosaurs and the meteor has already struck the earth a year ago. Maybe I'm smoking dope. Maybe I need to smoke dope. So here's the punchline. Credible thought leaders are still trotting the quadruple aim out there today as if none of this ecosystem existed. So it seems odd to me and maybe to you too, but I hear these speakers and I wonder what episode of Seinfeld are they now just catching up on from the 90s? You know, you can see on this show that we celebrate and we have achieved seven aims, not a moonshot of four. So we passed that moonshot back in the 90s, and we've colonized the outer moons of Jupiter with direct contracting. We're 20 million strong in members and growing, and bizarrely, nobody is tracking this unstoppable movement because it's so mighty, but it's so small. Even at 20 million, we're small. Okay, so Ron, what are the seven aims? Again, 
many of y'all can probably recite these from hearing this show, but happy payers, which are employers and consumers are renewing with DPC in the 90s, the high 90% range of all our 15 guests that have been on the show, the CEOs that are representing the scalable DPC now from the models. Number two, lower cost, 20 to 60% are dropping routinely and it's extremely well documented. Number three, better outcomes. So improved population health are in nearly every case study that we get our hands on in the show. Number four, happy members. We don't call them patients in direct contracting because it's usually a subscription-based paid digital first care model. And so you get net promoter scores and those are routinely coming in. And the lowest I've seen of our 15 guests is the high 80s and the highest I've seen is in the high 90s of net promoter scores. Pretty solid considering hospitals are in the 30 to 50 range. Happily clinicians is number five. Again, high internal NPS and more importantly, high retention rates for the physicians that go to work, not only for the direct primary care, but also the surgery centers. They're usually owners of the surgery centers. And uh, so the DPC models in the surgery centers have very happy dots, as opposed to a burnout rate of over 50% in primary care today. Happy community would be number six. We have found entire metros like Orlando can win if you listen to our two Rosen Care episodes with what Rosen Hotels did. I've gone on and on about them, but you can actually have a maternal company and you can eliminate crime and drug use and basically the whole hopelessness that comes with a poor neighborhood and take a bottom decile neighborhood and put them in the same matriculation rates for colleges, the top decile neighborhoods, if you pay for their college like Rosen Hotels. And the last one, number seven, is happy shareholders. So virtual care valuations have gotten slammed by 1,000 bills in telehealth and state houses all over the country because virtual care took a giant uptick in, in utilization. It jumped in the pandemic from one to, well, 40%, and then it dropped back down to 20 to 30%. But DPC has been in virtual care models since its inception in the 90s. So no really impact on the DPC private equity investors other than guilt by association with Teladoc and others who are now jumping into this virtual care model. So direct contracts led by advanced primary care have achieved all seven aims. Can we bury the quadruple aim, please? It's like talking up foil covered TV dinners is nutritional. It's beyond tired. And these seven are the perfect screening questions for today's guests. In fact, all of our guests. So our premise of this show is if we cure what's wrong in primary care, we can also see the way to fix Healthcare's embarrassing riches of problems downstream. So imagine a future where primary care has properly aligned incentives. That's direct contracting. So imagine if volume-centric fee-for-service care is not rewarded, but outcomes are instead. That's direct contracting. Imagine no clinician burnout. That's our world too. No true doctor nurse shortages. That's our world too. People are flocking to this model, in fact, from the big systems uh, because it's a source of an oasis in a desert, basically. And imagine that our health improves daily versus declines. Imagine costs dropping continuously as expensive downstream care is lessened, but dramatically more primary care touches upstream. That is the magic formula here. Imagine no medical bankruptcy or even medical debt for 110 million Americans. When we started this show four years ago, it was 80 million Americans were suffering from those constant phone calls, texts, emails, pay your debt, pay your bill. So you hit this high point of emotional peak uh, frustration with your hospital 
medical condition, and now you've got a financial to boot on top of that. Imagine EHR that's actually designed, instead of for local and state monopolies, designed to actually solve the problem in a pandemic. What are the best practices being used with clinicians and consumers? What's actually works to get people better? Because they're doing it in other countries and they have COVID death rates at five to 10% of ours. And imagine if the data mine gives us continuous improvement loop to boost outcomes and lower cost metrics. That's the promise of direct contracting of DPC. And it's actually playing out. Today, we're gonna to focus on one nonprofit that has a fair shot at proving this out, proving the best practices in purchasing healthcare can actually work. Can our guest, PBGH, we'll talk about it in a second, do all these seven things, lower costs, better outcomes, happy members, happy clinicians, happy payers, happy community, and happy shareholders. Can we do that? Well, you've met five employers on this show who have adopted this model in part or wholly, and now you're going to meet a leader at PBGH, which is the largest healthcare business group purchasing in America. Purchaser Business Group on Health, PBGH, has 40 employers involved, probably more, 21 million employees involved, 350 billion in healthcare spend, and so we've all heard of Walmart and Tesla and Costco and Apple and Boeing and Microsoft and eBay. And I'm not going to go through the whole list, but it reads like a who's who in Silicon Valley, including the largest employers uh, in California that you probably know about, like the state. So Rhonda Deaton is our guest today and is vice president of the purchasing engagement. She leads the member value team to engage purchasers in these high impact solutions to improve healthcare quality, affordability, and equity. Prior to joining PBGH, Rhonda served as the president and CEO of the Kentuckiana Health Collaborative, KHC, where she led the development of Kentucky's first multi-payer primary care quality and public reporting, among a lot of other innovations. Rhonda served as vice chair also of the National Alliance of Healthcare Purchaser Coalitions. So she also has a big national perspective on top of working with this group. So Rhonda, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Any comments before we get going on what we talked about? Well, I mean, you just described exactly what we're trying to accomplish. And um, that's what we're doing at PBGH is just thinking about how is it, it, it is advanced primary care, as we're calling it, that we are looking to support our members on how do we have collective impact in the market, both regionally and nationally, to scale primary care. Because all the things that you just said are the reasons we need a high functioning primary care system to really fix a lot of the ailments of our healthcare system um, and the challenges we face today. I have this fantasy in my head of like, I mean, Johnny Carson's is dead and Billy Crystal's retired, but of some great celebrity leading a Academy Awards to honor the company that has the ideal plan design for healthcare so that everybody can follow that model. What of all the companies either you're working with or that you're aware of in America, what models do you think have the best plan design for healthcare and who's offering that to their employees on a, on a real basis, not a theoretical basis? That's a great question. And I, I would say, you know, I, I wouldn't say there's necessarily the perfect plan, but what I would say there are elements to that define it. And that is the ideal health plan will say yes to the employer um, and will help them uh, build an advanced primary care um, network that integrates behavioral health, culturally sensitive care, timely access to care, population health management, care coordination, 
social needs assessments, informed referrals, and has high quality equitable outcomes. So we would increase, this health plan would help you increase primary care spending um, and help you reduce spending around specialty and wasteful care. So um, we know that investing in primary care provides tenfold in ROI. And so when we think about the perfect health plan, and we know a lot of our members are really working with their carriers, it is one that will help them uh, be thought partners and build these national networks or regional networks that have high functioning primary care. Well, you said something very important, Rhonda. You said that there's a 10X multiple on investing in primary care. So it kind of should be a no brainer that you know states and employers should invest in primary care, but it's not a layup. Not everybody gets that very simple fact. Um, how do you drive that home to the people in your alliance? You know, it, it is our members that are really asking for this. They are, they are driving the bus and we're responding to their requests. So, so there are sophisticated employers that really understand this. And, and to be quite honest, going back to your question about the health plan, I mean, we have a few members and we know of employers that are building out their own health plan to sit side by side the traditional plan to be able to say yes to the things that they want to do. Um, so um, what we are thinking about is how do we, we know that healthcare is local, so how do we make a regional impact um, with national contracts and national employers? So we are thinking about what is it that purchasers want to buy around primary care? Well, they, they have standards that they wanna buy. I listed some of those. So we have a common purchasing agreement that we released um, at the end of last year, or fall of last year. And we, we are now in the process of building out through work groups and, um, and subgroups. You know, what are the core measures that we need for primary care? How would we build an RFP? What would the contract terms look like? And how can we collectively you know, buy healthcare the same across the country. And that's the work that's been happening at PBGH with employer leadership. Very um, thoughtful and scientific. I, I'm, I'm a small employer, so I, I don't even think that way. Well, let's talk about the DPC offerings that have been accepted into the universe of the PBGH. Have y'all engaged or any of your employers engaged with direct primary care in any meaningful way yet? Yes, we have several members that are really thought leaders around direct primary care. Um, and I mean, the results are remarkable. We, we actually held a virtual primary care summit just for members to tell their stories. Uh, you're seeing quality scores. Um, and of course, these are HEDIS. And I know we want to move to more meaningful measurement, but HEDIS measures are um, still the standard. And we are seeing employers with direct primary care, achieving 95th percentiles in their quality. I mean, think about that. That's really, really high standards. They're seeing incredible savings. They're seeing happier employees, better well-being. Um, it's just, you know, as you mentioned, it's, a, it's really a game changer for employers to have direct primary care. Um, we have um, another employer that has direct primary care but they know that they need more purchasers in the market um, to really agree both public purchasers and private employers to gain, to, to join in this effort so that we can scale because we know we need providers to be measured on the same standards and, 
and to have a common uh, purchasing agreement for how we are buying care. Um, well, so, wanna, yeah. yeah. I want to get into the, the measurable downstream savings in a second because you addressed that. But when somebody's in the 95% in the HEDIS scores, do you think it's because now the doc, without having the regime of insurance billing and coding and um, the whole CPT, ICD-9, ICD-10, you know, nightmare, now they can actually sit down and talk to the patient, to the employer's member as opposed to tap, tap, tap while they're looking away. I mean, it's more meaningful time and smaller panels, but do you have any other theories why DPC is so amazingly successful? Yeah, no, I think you just described it. I mean, not only, you know, we have to invest in primary care and we don't. And 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 physicians should be, you know, um, you know, performing at their highest licensure and they need teams, integrated deliveries, integrated teams, integrated mental health, um, pharmacy support. And in the direct primary care, we can see that they have that support. Um, they don't have the eight minute visit, but the other thing is they have informed referrals. So they're not just referring anywhere, they're really thinking about the quality and the cost of where they are referring people for specialty care, for labs, for imaging, things like that, that we know drive a lot of the costs in healthcare. Yes. Yeah, that's the PCP that's going to drive that. Okay, let's talk about my first question. So any measurable downstream savings, like either lower utilization of um, stays or procedures or ER use or specialist use, what are, what are you seeing in your universe for metrics of savings? Yeah, so we had one member that, um, so they had a shared clinic arrangement um, for DPC, for a direct primary care arrangement. And they found that if they had a patient um, that was in the direct primary care clinic, that they spent about $850 per year. Um, but if you took that same sample of you know, beneficiaries and they called it kind of out in the wild, <laughs> um, that was about $3,200 per year per patient. And, and they did find that that was primarily driven by referrals. Hmm. So that's a four to one ROI. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I think the other thing is we, so at PBGH, we have um, the uh, California Quality Collaborative that was part of CMS's Transforming Clinical Practice Initiative. And it had over 3 million Californians. And that was really, really that data I was mentioning earlier. We found that for every $1 that was invested in primary care, there was a $10 in healthcare savings with better diabetes control and lower ER utilization. Um, now we've expanded that, take, taken the learnings from that. We have a primary care pilot in California with three public purchasers and a private employer to test those um, measures and that methodology um, just to see, um, and that's happening this year. Um, in California to see if we see those same savings. And then we're, looking at other markets to expand the regional implementation of that pilot. Well, let's talk about diabetes control, just because you mentioned it. It's a gigantic door opening. If we can get chronic care costs like diabetes down, we've saved, what, 40 to 60% of the employer spend right there? Um, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We, we have another employer that found um, in their study that employees that had a primary care provider, a usual primary care provider, 
um, that they were 31% less expensive across nine disease states, including diabetes. So, and, and that was not advanced primary care. That was just general, you know, generally having a usual source of primary care. You got someone who knows you. Yeah, it's incredible. We, in the family practice world, they use the, the term that it's like wearing seatbelts or quitting smoking in terms of extending your life. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're on the same page. Okay, so are pre-market surgery centers being looked at as centers of excellence? I know Walmart did a really, well, 30-year experiment with centers of excellence and, uh, you know, they keep refining it, but they can't get people engaged in their center of excellence. They're still, they saved a billion dollars in 2019, but are other smaller independent free market surgery centers possibly being included because that ecosystem's in every one of the 50 states now? Yeah, I mean, PBGH actually had Ethan, which was the center of excellence and partners and, and partnered on that project and really led a lot of the Ethan work. Um, we don't have that project anymore, but we, PBGH has a long history of working with COEs, and we're really taking the learnings from that and applying it to advanced primary care. You know, going to those, you know, COEs, around, you know, ambulatory surgical centers, I think, you know, one of the challenges is, um, I think that, yes, that's possible, but we do have limited, you know, quality data on the ASC. So we know LeapFrog has introduced, you know, voluntary reporting, but we do need more quality data to be able to look at outcomes and experience um, for those ASCs. Well, besides infection rates and complication and readmission rates, do you really need any more? I mean, you can make a pretty long list of smaller impact items, but is there anything more serious than those three things? Well, I, you know, I think we want to make sure that those outcomes are equitable, but, uh, you know, I think many employers are beginning to think about how the PCP can have informed referrals and make those referrals to the, you know, to uh, those ASCs that they think appropriate. So I think what we hear employers thinking about is how do we have, you know, I know I've heard you talk on this program about, you know, kind of all of the digital solutions and, and, and those are important um, because people are, uh, employers are implementing those to fill gaps in care, but it also fragments the system. Um, so, so, and so I think, you know, employers are really looking to PCPs to be able to make those referrals. I come down a little hard on the digital apps out there because I, I don't see many that are playing into this wonderful universe called direct contracting uh, to solve the problems inside it. Yeah, they're solving the problems, what I call putting lipstick on a pig, which is the broken system outside of direct contracting. That's why I'm a little hard on these guys, but um, let's talk about the savings. Are any employers using those savings to reduce their either spend in healthcare or to maybe add other benefits? I, I, I watched Walmart closely and um, I was there at their first store when they uh, opened theirs in Dallas, Georgia. I thought it was really exciting to, you know, go watch the launch of the maiden ship. Um, but they saved a billion dollars in 2019, the year before, and then they used this year 250 million of that to provide college tuition assistance and post high school tuition assistance to their partners, which is really cool. Um, are other companies like Walmart doing that in your universe? Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, let's just say kudos to Walmart and, uh, you know, Rosen Hotels for all of this amazing community work they're doing. And I would say, yes, employers are, you know, engaged in community health activities. And I think 
um, you know, businesses are thinking about this and public purchasers in different ways. And I would just say, lately, as I've been talking to employers who are finding themselves with savings, flat trend, they're really thinking about how do we reduce deductibles? How do we make healthcare more affordable for our employees? And so a lot of those savings we are seeing are um, have been about making healthcare more affordable. Um, but we also know that we have employers are really committed to equity and are doing community health work to drive, you know, better equitable outcomes in their communities because a lot of the inequities that exist are are national issues, but also regional issues that require more systemic changes. Yeah, like if you take your spend of all of your employers, kind of like from 10,000 feet, if somebody's spending 350 billion in 2020 and they're spending more or less in 2022, do y'all have some kind of trend for what your per member per month spend is for your employers in your coalition? We don't, but I mean, they really match national, they are matching the national trend primarily. Some of them have been pretty good about getting flat trends. So perhaps they could be a little bit below that. I know that employers are concerned about inflation and uh, rate increases that we are expecting on the horizon. So, you know, I, and, and I think we've really reached the point where there is no more cost shifting to employees and their families. So I think the big question is how are we getting control of the spend? And so it's, it, it's, a, it's a huge source of conversation around, among our members. And in fact, we had um, a strategy committee to really think about this earlier in the year. And we just revealed these big audacious goals around what's the next step for purchasers. And it was really around redirecting existing healthcare spend to high quality, equitable, and evidence-based care that uh, holds total costs flat, and then redirects purchasing to whole person health um, and holds accountability for whole, uh, whole person health and well-being, and then eliminates disparities. So really big goals around holding flat and really investing in primary care. We've had people on the show, five guests that took their savings from DPC and they basically eliminated all premiums, co-pays and deductibles. So free healthcare is kind of like a nirvana, kind of like a Valhalla dream, but they're pulling it off and they're never losing their employees. They're in a, in a tough resignation economy and in a tough, you know, basically a, a downturn in the economy. It's a really amazing tool to have. Um, let's talk about the pharmacy spend since you're talking about how do you reduce low-hanging fruit. Um, from the benefit brokers I've had on the show, pharmacy seems to be a really easy grape to pluck to get the cost way down. Um, what are you seeing, again, in your coalition for reducing pharmacy spend and things like imaging and adding accuracy to imaging so you don't have a bunch of false reads? Is there Are there any employers that are doing interesting things there? Yeah, I mean, I think pharmacy, I think you're right. Pharmacy is just such, it feels like a low-hanging fruit because we know there's so much markup and um, around um, formulary. And and what employers are doing are thinking about waste-free formulary. That's something that PBGH put out several years ago. And I know a lot of employer members use that. But, you know, also we are, they are really thinking about making sure that their contracts are not rebate-driven and that they should manage medical specialty and site of service um, 
we we do something called the health value index where we measure plan performance and we look for adoption of biosimilars. That's something employers are trying to increase biosimilar use. And then also really thinking about getting compensation disclosures from their consultants who may be running their RFPs and understanding um, all those compensation connections um, between the PBMs and their consultants. Rhonda, I, I, <laughs> I've spoken to some when I, I can't put them on the show because they don't want to talk about it. But after the show, I have some of the most interesting conversations and two different consultants that work for big houses told me there's 17 hidden fees. And now with this Consolidated Appropriations Act, yeah. they have nowhere to hide. Like, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the cover's off. They're in the sunlight now. And they have to disclose. Yeah, I mean, we're we're actually, you know, right now those files are machine readable, and and I would say they're machine readable, <laughs> not really readable. Um, and um, I know there are some companies that are, you know, really mining and cleaning that data, but it will be, you know, fascinating to be able to see under the hood for the first time, um, because we've been looking for that for a long time. And I think, you know, the other part. Um, that we are looking to support our members on is really reducing, getting rid of those gotcha clauses that are in those contracts um, and helping them tackle some of those problems around PBM contracting. I think it's a little bit of a whack-a-mole, like, you know, maybe we worked on this, <laughs> but then there's some other fee or some other issue that continues to pop up around pharmacy. You know, if you were called the Purchases Alliance of anything but healthcare, you wouldn't be talking about, about whack-a-mole. Like that wouldn't even be in the discussion. But you, that's the games that the big healthcare players play. That's the, that's the regime. It's a ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It, it is, and and it's also, you know, I, I think you know we should applaud the benefits teams for the uh, level of knowledge that's required of them to be able to manage all of these contracts, to have all this expertise and to get ahead of them. Um, it's really a Herculean effort. And, um, you know, I, I, I had a member one time say, this is like swimming upstream. <laughs> like this is hard um, to really keep track of it. And this is where the value of per collective purchaser impact is really important because every other industry has organized, but the, have not. And so how do we bring them together, um, you know, to really, you know, think about how they can collectively move in the same direction? So, Rhonda, we were talking about best practices to reduce pharmacy spend and imaging and um, virtual care really took off this pandemic in a big way. Um, who do you see really taking advantage of virtual primary care to advance advanced primary care? Verse and, and why do you respect them? What are they doing that you respect? Yeah, I mean, virtual, uh, you know, virtual care has really been a game changer for um, employers and public purchasers. And I really see everyone using it um, in terms of all of the digital solutions to fill in gaps, particularly around mental health. I think that that's been really helpful in solving some of our issues. I think. Um, you know, and we do have members that are, you know, thinking about virtual primary care or have virtual primary care. And, and because equity is such a huge priority, um, employers are really thinking about how do we make sure that our employees and their families have access to essentially equal coverage across the country. 
And so this is where virtual care becomes really important. And um, it also is something that they really want provider directories that really include race, ethnicity, gender, language, LGBTQ status, really to ensure folks are getting culturally sensitive care and have this equal access to care across the geography. So I really see it as a way for employers to, you know, try to create more equitable care for their uh, beneficiaries. Um, Rand, I know you're excited about some employers that are doing some creative things in the health benefits space. What types of broad things are you seeing that you get excited about for the coming year? Gosh, there are so many things. I, 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 I see employers really focused on consumer experience, um, really focused on how for how to create frictionless care, how to think about the whole person instead of pieces and parts, <laughs> um, and how to really just create a healthcare system that supports them wherever they are in life, where they, wherever they are um, across geographies, and whatever context for which they're in, just to create um, better well-being, um, better affordability, and better outcomes. That's a, that's a shift, isn't it? All right, so let's talk about the fiduciary responsibility issue. We've got to talk about something serious here. So plan sponsors can't enrich others in intentionally, unintentionally with regard to disclosing broker comp. So now that we have all this transparency breaking out all over, the CAA is now requiring reporting uh, noncompliance. Is that kind of a thorn in the side of the folks that are dealing with this on the employer side, or is it, are they happy about it? Well, you know, I heard someone say at a conference the other day, it's like we're the dog that caught the car. Um, you know, we have been advocating for transparency and for years, and we finally have it. Um, what I would say at this point is that we don't really have it yet, though. I mean, the, um, we, we have some of the hospital pricing that was released earlier, but really the 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 best data will be this data that came out July 1st, um, and then later the pharmacy data, and then also on 1-1 one, one having the shoppable data. But at this point, this data is machine-readable files, and so it's really difficult to make heads or tails of it. And so in talking to members the last few weeks, it's, you know, yes, their files have been released, but they're not really able to read it or make sense of it. Um, and so, you know, we have, there was one health plan that released 440,000 files. <laughs> um, one that released 25,000 files. So um, we've, we, we will have to look to those data aggregators and cleaners to put this in a format where we can actually use the data. But yes, we're all looking forward to being able to see it, to see those negotiated rates and be able to do something meaningful to drive change. Uh, yeah, we've, we've had a couple on this show that are uh, aggregators and cleaners that have already done all that work for you. So uh, if you want to talk afterwards, I'm happy to introduce you. But um, so basically, what is your message for employers out there that are looking to you guys? You, I mean, you're, Walmart is the biggest employer in America, maybe federal government. But what the, here we are, you're sitting sort of at the top of the mountain with this macro view of for employers that are about to get into these serious headwinds, not only labor shortages, but an economy that's tough, interest rates are going up, so you know, bond prices are gonna cost more for employers. 
What is your message on the healthcare side to give people hope? I, I absolutely believe that we can, as purchasers, work together to collectively move the market in the way that we want to see healthcare delivered. And so what I would suggest is that employers and public purchasers should join um, coalitions like PBGH, the Purchaser Business Group on Health, or their regional coalition. Um, and we have numbers that are in both because healthcare is local um, and a regional, but the contracts are national. And how do we scale work regionally and nationally? It's, by, it's through collective impact. How do we influence together in a way that drives the market forward? So join your regional or national coalition. Yeah, so Peter Hayes in Maine used the words market maker versus market taker. I really like that saying. I love it. Peter Hayes is great. <laughs> He's the OG. He kind of thought of this whole idea long, 30 years ago when nobody was thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah, um, and, and Elizabeth Mitchell, who's our CEO, um, she formerly ran that coalition um, uh, before Peter was there. So, yeah. <laughs> hmm. oh, great. Love well, it's just, it's, they talk funny up there, but they got it together. Absolutely. Well, um, thank you, Randa, for being on the show. Um, if people want to reach out to PBG&H, uh, what is the best way to connect with y'all and uh, learn of all of your great reporting and all of your great summaries that you put together from time to time? Yeah, just go to pbgh.org and you'll see um, who we are. And you can you can contact and send an email. You can also just email me at rdeaton at pbgh.org. And thanks so great. much for having us. This is great. Yeah, well, it's great fun and I enjoyed it very much. And we'll get you back again. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks, Randa. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, Go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.